0: Welcome to the New Day Community Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you're encouraged by this message from the Kalamazoo, Michigan campus. For more info on the church, visit newdaycommunity.org. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? So this is actually not, despite the video and all that you would think leading up to this moment, this is not a new question of who is Jesus. And this morning, we're going to look at what the Nicene Creed has to say about Jesus. And we're going to look at one very specific point this morning, that Jesus is fully divine. And over the next few weeks, we're actually going to be looking at um, multiple weeks of who Jesus is, because we're not just going to capture it in one week um, today. But people have been asking this question of who is Jesus, pretty much from all of human history when he existed. You remember King Herod was terrified of Jesus when he was a baby? That is quite a reputation to have as a baby, right? (laughs) So people have been talking about Jesus since day one, right? I need to turn this on somehow. All right, Austin, I'm going to ask for your help. He's coming. Perfect. See if this works. <laughs> He's running.) <laughs> there we go. Victory. So even up until the present day, people have been asking this question: Who is Jesus? Anybody seen this promo? Uh, finding jesus this is actually a current show that's on cnn it's called finding jesus fact faith or forgery science and archaeology offer insights okay uh, (laughs) into ancient artifacts that may be linked back to jesus christ so multiple week series just started last sunday so, people up until this present day are asking this question, who is Jesus? Trying to figure out who he is. What What is, what is it with this person, Jesus? So, this is a very relevant question. Now, people in our culture today, they might not go to church as frequently as they did a generation ago. But they still have an idea of who Jesus is. If you say the word Jesus to people, if you use that phrase... They're going to have some idea of who Jesus is. They're going to have some association. It may be pretty biblically based. It might not be. But they're going to have some impression of who he is. And for us as Christians, it's really important that we know in our own lives and our own faith who Jesus is. So in 2008, this book came out by Stephen Nichols. He's a professor at a school, and um, he does a lot with church history. And he wrote this book called Jesus Made in America. Jesus Made in America. And so what he did is he mapped out from the earliest days of America what the popular culture view of Jesus has been. So what have people been saying in the culture at large about Jesus throughout the history of the United States? So. I'm going to just give you a five-minute overview of what he has um, covered in this book, because it leads us to our topic today in looking at the Nicene Creed. So, the first Jesus that he talks about is Puritan Jesus. So, those first settlers, they hit the East Coast, they're setting up their colonies in the New World, and they're very pious people. Now, we might think of the Puritans as all rigid and rules and this and that and legalism. But they had a lot to say about the person of Jesus. And they really balanced Jesus as human and Jesus as divine. For them, they would talk about Jesus as the friend of sinners. And of course, for them, they were very aware of their own sinfulness. So Jesus, friend of sinners, that meant a lot to them. But they also talked about Jesus as a righteous judge. So we see a real balance in their view. So, next we have Jesus for a new republic. If you are starting a new country and you need rule models, who better to look to than Jesus? Right? Jesus is this fine, upstanding person of virtue and morality. And so, Franklin, Jefferson, Washington, and others looked to Jesus in his humility. He was meek, he was industrious, and he was honest. If you were a laborer in the field... Or, or the head of state. It didn't matter. Jesus was a model for you of personal piety. He was a good example of somebody you could pattern your life after. But a couple of things kind of started to fall away in this period in the wider understanding of Jesus. The idea of Jesus as a righteous judge, not so emphasized at this point. And also the idea that Jesus was fully divine. Let's not worry about that too much. In this period of, of uh, American history. So, as the U.S. expanded westwards, and this whole idea of the frontier and the Wild West, well, Jesus kind of took on this frontier Wild West image for a while, where he was this rugged frontiersman, you know, who battled and just was like a real man's man. Well, interestingly, that totally turned around with Victorian Jesus. So this is like the end of the 1800s into the early 1900s, where Jesus, instead of being this rugged, wild outdoors man, suddenly became a domesticated Jesus, where he was Jesus meek and mild, where he just took on this, this very respectable, kind of caring, human side. A lot of our Christmas carols, our favorite classic Christmas carols, come from Victorian Jesus era, And they loved the image of baby Jesus. And that's what they gravitated towards. Well, fast forward a couple of decades into the early 1920s. And throughout the 1920s and the 1930s, there was a big debate about who was Jesus. Was he liberal Jesus or was he conservative Jesus? And so this was a really big deal in the early uh, 20th century. In 1922, a preacher called Harry Emerson Fosdick preached a very widely known sermon called, Shall the Fundamentalists Win? And in that sermon, he made the case for a liberal Jesus. And he said that Jesus should not be considered necessarily divine, that he's just a good guy that we follow. And you can have devotion and and piety towards Jesus, and you can see him as a good example But let's back off of this idea that Jesus is divine. And so he emphasizes what was labeled as this liberal version of Jesus. Now, this triggered a really big response from others. And the most famous response came um, just a little bit later in 1923, a book by J. Gresham Mitchin, who was a professor and a pastor. And he wrote a book called Christianity and Liberalism. Christianity and liberalism, which you can still get. So a book in 1923 you can still get in print means it's a good one. So um, he basically said that this liberal Jesus and this liberal Christianity where you just follow the good example of Jesus as a good guy, he said that's not even fit to be called Christianity. He said real Christianity demands that we see that Jesus is fully divine and that he died in our place And he just lays out the classic Christian understanding. And this was a big battle in the church from the 1920s and 30s, which ultimately the fundamentalist church movement broke away from the liberal church movement. And ultimately the evangelical church came out of the fundamentalist church. And ultimately the Pentecostal church came out. And ultimately the charismatic church came out. So our church history goes right back to these types of debates. Then we have Jesus people, Jesus. <laughs> so the 1960s, hippie time, rebelling against authority. And one of the things people rebelled against was stuffy church. Ugh. Who likes stuffy church? Well, Jesus people, Jesus was not a stuffy church kind of guy. He was the kind of guy that you could hang out with. He was there for you. It was you and Jesus just hanging out. And this led to contemporary Christian music, Jesus, which we saw an example of earlier, which is Jesus in culture. Hey, Jesus is cool. He's one of us, we can sing songs about him. Hollywood has never been afraid to present Jesus. So we're familiar with more recent movies like Mel Gibson, the Passion of the Christ. But even if you go back just a little bit further, you have The Last Temptation of Christ. And if you go back even further, you have 1927's The King of Kings, Cecil B. DeMille. Musicals about Jesus, Godspell, Jesus Christ Superstar. Hollywood and the entertainment industry, not afraid to take on Jesus as an interesting character and present him whatever way they'd like to present him. Well, more recently, we also have Jesus CEO. That's a book. And also, hashtag, what would Jesus do? Remember the bracelets? So this is where Jesus is another brand. You can buy into Jesus, because he's the best manager you'll ever need. He's an awesome life coach. And then finally, most recent history, we got right wing Jesus. So, despite the fact that Jesus said his kingdom was not of this world, throughout history, people have always claimed Jesus to be on their side of the political spectrum. So, time and again, Nichols in this book shows how our culture has grabbed a hold of Jesus and refashioned Jesus to fit their cause or to fit their image. And so, with all of these different ideas about who is Jesus, it's really important for us to know for ourselves who Jesus is, what's fundamentally at the core of our understanding of who Jesus is, and that's what the Nicene Creed helps us to establish. We do know quite a bit about the life of Jesus. We know that He lived about 2,000 years ago. We know that he lived in Judea and modern-day Israel. I mean, we know some basic facts about Jesus. We know quite a bit about his birth. We know a couple of things from his childhood. We know that he worked as a carpenter or a laborer. We know that around age 30, he started a public ministry as a rabbi, teaching and preaching. And we know that he ultimately um, was convicted, uh, died on a cross, and rose again. So there are very, very few people that would deny the fact that someone called Jesus lived in this part of the world during this time period. There's very few people that doubt the fact that somebody called Jesus exists. There's so much historical record. Now, they may debate some of the bits around the edge. I mean, the CNN is an example, the show that I referenced earlier, where they're kind of looking and trying to make these historical connections. But in general, there's not really debate over whether somebody called Jesus lived 2,000 years ago. The question is, what does his life mean? How do you make meaning of his life and who he is? Now, Jesus' life in some ways mirrors what was a common pattern or a theme during the time that he lived. There were other people who felt called by God, who just emerged out of nowhere with a message from God who had some followers and ultimately were killed by the authorities. That was a fairly common pattern. The authorities were keen to put down any political or religious uprising anytime people said I have a message from God and started to get popular, oh, let's get rid of this guy. So in some ways, the life of Jesus is not that remarkable because he rose up with a message from God from relative obscurity nobody paid any attention to anything that happened in Nazareth preaches a message and is killed by the authorities and if you read the gospels closely you can see that the moment jesus dies the people think that right well that's it it's over but the amazing thing is that jesus life has these moments these insights that tell us that something more is happening. That he's not just some other guy. Think back to the story of his birth. It's pretty remarkable. We know this from our Christmas story. There are angel visits, there are wise men, there are kings, there's extravagant gifts, a virgin birth, an exile to a foreign land because a king is really freaked out. Well, that's that's kind of unusual. The scene from his childhood, age 12, Jesus is in the temple and he's debating and he's teaching with the religious leaders. Where does he get all this knowledge from? He's so wise. His ministry, his public ministry, he has signs and wonders. He has the ability to heal people. Visible healings where he consistently is seen to heal people. He also seems to freak out demons. You notice in scripture, in the gospels, that one of the first witnesses to Jesus being divine is from the demonic realm. He also can walk on water and seems to control the weather. So there are things here that are definitely unusual. (laughs) He also speaks of himself as if he's the divine son of God. Um, At one point, he tells the teachers that uh, before Abraham was, I am. Whoa, he just offended them on two levels. The first level he offended them on was, they said, well, you're not even like you're about 30 years old, there's no way that you have lived for thousands of years. So, he offends them just on a just straight-up natural, like, you're not old enough level. But the main way he offends them is that he invokes the divine name, I am, which we sang about a few moments ago. If you invoke the name, I am, you are basically saying, I am God. And those religious teachers knew it. And if you read their response, they are livid and they see that Jesus is blaspheming. So Jesus lives a life where he claims through various ways that he's divine. Ultimately, he's killed on the cross and he's buried. Now, if you're Jesus and you've made all of these claims you need to be able to back them up, right? So Jesus is in the tomb. How much power does Jesus have at that moment? None. He is dead. Totally dead. He's in the tomb. And what happens? God the Father vindicates And backs up Jesus' entire life, entire ministry, every word he said, because God the Father raises Jesus from the dead. So we have all of these elements coming together where Jesus, we see, is not your ordinary rabbi wandering around 2,000 years ago. And people had to make sense of what exactly does this life story mean? And the apostle Paul and others in the early church started that. And what we have in the Nicene Creed continues this development of what do we think about Jesus? Who is Jesus? All right, let's stand together for a moment. Let's read this Nicene Creed. We do this every Sunday when we have communion but I thought it would be good that we could do it again as we're focusing in. So let's read this together. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, He suffered and was buried the third day he rose again according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of the Father, and he shall come again with glory to judge the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And I believe in what? holy, universal, and apostolic church. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. You may be seated. So this morning, we are looking at this section. One Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made. In order to understand the significance and the weight of these words, we need to spend a few minutes in church history. Because when we can see the background and why these words came to be, I think they take on a lot more significance and meaning for us. So the Nicene Creed emerged from a meeting of around 250 to 300 bishops, and they met from May 25th to June 19th in the year 325 in a meeting called the Council of Nicaea. So the reason that all of these people got together was that there was a pretty significant debate going on in the life of the church. All right there we go. And the words that we just read together really get at the heart of why they had to meet. The words that we just read, the very God a very God being of one," that was the absolute essence of why they had to meet. To decide what it was about the nature of Jesus that was so crucial and fundamental. So the background to this, to the Council of Nicaea, that there were a number of different people and groups who were saying things about the nature of Jesus. They were talking about who is Jesus, and they were saying things that were contradicting each other. And the most important of these people was a guy called Arius, who was a bishop in North Africa. And he was saying that Jesus was separate from God the Father, that he was not equal with God, Instead, he said that God the Father was the only true God. He was the only sole creator of all things. The only God the Father was eternal. Now, Arius also um, thought the Holy Spirit was separate from God the Father as well. But that wasn't the main reason that they were meeting. The main reason they were meeting is to figure out who is Jesus. So this meant for Arius... That Jesus was therefore not eternal. That Jesus did not create the world. He was not equal with God and divine nature. Now he did recognize that Jesus was in some way special. He realized that Jesus had something about him that was different. And so what he said is that Jesus should be considered as the first among all of the created creatures. The highest of all creatures, but not quite divine. So this teaching by Arius became quite widespread at a time when the church was trying to figure out who exactly is Jesus. So they met in this council of Nicaea. Now Arius and his ideas, they didn't come from a vacuum. They were a product of the culture in which they live. So remember earlier, I talked about all the different ways Jesus has been understood culturally in America. Well, at the time, this Aryan view of Jesus reflected the culture of the day. So in Greek philosophy and Greek thinking, which was the culture of this time, the divine nature... Anything divine, anything pure, anything holy was completely separate from anything physical, anything material, anything earthly. You had to keep these two things completely separate. Now this posed a real problem for these Christians because Jesus is both divine and human. Jesus has flesh and blood. So in Greek thinking, that would make him material, and it would make him evil and impure. And yet, we also say that Jesus is divine. And so those two things, those two ideas, would not go together for Greek culture and Greek society. And so Arius is simply reflecting that culture. And he's saying, well, if God the Father is already established as being this pure and holy being who's totally separate from the earth, then we can agree with that. But this idea that Jesus somehow is both fully divine and fully human, I can't agree to that. Because that means that this pure, holy, Spiritual essence would have to meet this physical, earthly, corrupted, impure. And they kept both completely separate. And so he came up with his way of thinking about Jesus as not divine, just a little smidge below divine. He has some unique and special gifts and abilities that God gave him, but he's not divine. So this was the tension that existed in the church, because you had established teaching which affirmed that Jesus was fully divine and was fully human. So I tried to think of a way for us to think about this, because for us it's more abstract, but for them, this was the world they lived in. This had an emotional pull for them. This was the way they oriented their entire society. So I thought about two things that cannot be together. See that huge divide between the two? We cannot have both. Except we try. <laughs> terrible. Even worse. It's coming right up. All right, Austin, here we go. Here we go. It's going to happen. <laughs> here we go. <laughs> That's terrible. Who would ever wear that? <laughs> Right? If you saw someone wearing that, boy, you'd want to help them. (laughs) So this idea, we're keeping two things separate that just fundamentally do not belong together. That's the tension. Okay? So look at the words of the creed. And when you look at each of those statements in that first paragraph, this part of the creed we're looking at today, you can see that when the Council of Nicaea was all done and they written their creed, that they fundamentally dismantled the argument of Arius. And in doing so, established church teaching that remains to this day. So here it is. One Lord Jesus, only begotten Son of God. So there's really five main things that this series of words is saying in phrases. I want to just highlight them for you. First, Jesus is one. Now, Arius was just one person. He was just one example of the way in which that culture was trying to make sense of Jesus as fully divine and fully human. And one of the ways that they've thought about it, was they said, well, maybe Jesus was just this ordinary guy who, at the time of his baptism, was given special abilities by God. So you remember the baptism, the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus? So people came up with this elaborate way of thinking Jesus was normal, human being, going about his business, and then, oh, all of a sudden the Holy Spirit lands on him and he's the Messiah and he has all of these abilities, And some people thought that was a way to make sense of it because then Jesus would switch from like fully human to fully divine and then did he go back to fully human again or did he stay as fully... I mean, it was this very elaborate system. And so there were a lot of these different theories and ways of thinking about Jesus in the culture of the day of the Nicene Creed. And they stepped in and said, no, Jesus is one. There's none of this switching back and forth between people or between natures. They said, Jesus is one. They also said that Jesus is of the same substance and therefore equal with God the Father. Now, this gets to the absolute heart of the matter. That Jesus is fully equal with God the Father and of the same substance as God the Father. So, the whole Arius idea that Jesus and God the Father had to be totally separate, the Nicene Creed says no we have to absolutely, fully affirm that Jesus and the Father are of the one substance and are equal. Same nature, same authority. Jesus is also unique as the only begotten Son of God. So yeah, Arius may have thought that Jesus was unique in some way, but Arius didn't think Jesus was unique enough. Also, Jesus is eternal. Arius taught that because Jesus was not, was not God, that God the Father had created Jesus at some point in time. Because, remember, Jesus is just the highest of creatures for Arius. So they said, no, Jesus is actually eternal. That Jesus existed long before he was born. In fact, Jesus was there right from the start of one substance, equal with God the Father. Now, I don't know if you've given much thought to the fact that Jesus existed before he was born, but Jesus existed from the beginning. But when Jesus came to earth, that was a once and for all decision. Because when Jesus came to earth and he took on the appearance of a man, that was a one-time no-going-back deal. Remember when Jesus rose from the dead? What appearance did he have? He appears as a man. When he ascended into heaven, appearance as a man. Jesus' appearance today, as a man. So Jesus took on flesh and blood, and he took on the appearance of a man, and there was no going back from that decision. That's getting into next week's a little more. Finally, he's creator. This is really essential because in the ancient way of thinking, if you have the title of God or you are called divine, then creating everything goes with the job description. Right? If you're the boss at the company, then you make the decisions. Right? It just goes with the territory. Right? If you're God, then you create. A God that didn't create anything, not really worth it. It's not really a God, right? It's just some other being. So, if Jesus is of the same nature of God, if he's eternal, if he's equal with God, then Jesus is also creator, which again dismantled Arius' argument that Jesus was just another creature. So, these are all really technical things that they worked out at the time to really make some meaning of who Jesus is. And the result for us today still stands that we affirm this two natures of Christ doctrine. So as a church, we affirm the humanity and the divinity of Jesus. So if this side of the church, you guys affirm the humanity of Jesus, so after three, you say, Jesus is fully human. All right, so one, two, three... Jesus is fully human. And you guys, after three, Jesus is fully divine. One, two, three. Jesus is fully divine. And over history, we kind of get pulled one direction or the other. Where the humanity of Jesus gets affirmed, then other times it's the divinity of Jesus that gets affirmed. But for us to be the truest and most faithful expression as the church, we must affirm both together. So after three, everyone say their part. One, two, three. Jesus is fully divine. And we have to affirm both equally. That Jesus is fully human, and Jesus is fully divine. Now, the bishops at the Nicene Creed, they weren't just talking about philosophy, they were really rooting everything in Scripture. And I just want to show you a couple of examples of that as we close this morning. Philippians 2, 5 to 11, if you want to dig into this more deeply, is a crucial Scripture in this debate. Verse 6 in particular talks about the equality that Jesus had with God. We see his descent taking on the appearance of a human, being fond as a servant And then later in verses 9 to 11, you see the ascension of Christ where he is exalted and glorified. Philippians chapter 2 is a big passage for this, but there are other New Testament passages where the divinity, the divine nature of Christ is hinted at, mentioned, inferred, that builds together to make a case. For Jesus, as fully divine. So the Nicene Creed, in answering this question of who is Jesus, says Jesus is God, that He's fully divine. So I mentioned at the start, there's lots of different ways that Jesus is thought about, debated in our culture. But I would say the tendency in the culture is to minimize the divine nature of Jesus. If anything, our culture will push us to think about the human side of Jesus. And remember, as a church, we do affirm the full humanity of Jesus. But we need to balance that with remembering that Jesus is also fully divine. If you consider that Jesus is fully divine, it places a lot more emphasis on who he is. It places a lot more demands upon us as we follow him. And it's easier to emphasize the humanity of Jesus, who is an example to follow, who's a good guy that we can pattern our life over, that we can just think about him and ponder and meditate on the goodness of who he is. But if we do that, and we don't hold on to the fact that he's fully divine, then we lose something very significant. I want to outline just four of those. First of all, if we believe that Jesus is fully divine, we see that he reveals God to us. What better way to know what God is like than to see him in the flesh What does it look like when God interacts with people? What does God care about? We see that in Jesus. We know that it was God who died in our place, not just some other guy. If you don't affirm the divinity of Jesus, then his death, his resurrection... they they shouldn't really mean anything to you. Because it was just some other guy who lived a good life and died. The shed blood of Jesus doesn't really have any value. Just some other guy. But when we hold on to the divinity of Jesus, we know that it was God who died in our place. It was God who stepped in and made a way for our relationship to be restored with him. Remember in the Garden of Eden, the relationship between humanity and God is completely fundamentally altered. And the cry throughout all of the Old Testament is when will the relationship between God and humanity be restored? And we see it in Jesus. Humanity and God are fully reunited. And finally, when we worship Jesus, We know that he is truly worthy of our praise because of his divine nature. Again, if we take the divine nature off the table, we're just worshiping some other guy that lived a good life. That doesn't seem to make sense. When Jesus comes to earth and he reunites the divine with the human, he affirms the goodness of creation He affirms the goodness of this world because he comes to restore things in this earth. That idea of separating the good and the pure and the holy as this very spiritual thing versus everything earthly is kind of corrupt, those ideas kind of persist in our church today where we're tempted to think that Salvation means Jesus comes and whisks us away from this evil planet and takes us back to some heavenly bliss. And that affirms this idea that the earth is bad and corrupted. But in reality, we see at the end of the Bible that God comes to earth and that redemption and God putting everything new happens on this earth. And Jesus, the fact that he was fully divine and fully human is the first indication of that that full restoration that is to come. All right, let's stand, and we're going to pray to finish this morning. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is both fully divine and fully human. We praise you, that you sent your son to die in our place, and we can put full confidence and faith in his sacrifice. That he has made a way for us to have a restored relationship with you. Help us, Father, to understand in a deeper way the divine nature of Jesus, what it means for Jesus to be both fully God and fully man. Pray, God, that you would continue to sustain us to uphold us this week God that you would go with us and that you would guide us and lead us in your name we pray Amen